We're going to read this morning from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and from the first chapter and uh, any of the children who are leaving uh, could leave perhaps at uh, this point. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, may God bless his word to our hearts this morning. The phrase, all roads lead to Rome, is one of the most popular phrases in the English language. We don't always, perhaps, recognize that that phrase is actually based on historical fact, that there was a time when all roads did lead to Rome. During the days of the Roman Empire, everyone was to know that Rome was the center of their life. Every road in the Roman Empire either led directly to Rome or it was linked to a major road that did lead to Rome. And not only did this help to point out the importance of the main city of the Roman Empire... But it also improved trade. And one of the reasons that the Roman Empire worked so efficiently 
and for such a long time was because travel was easy, because all roads lead to Rome. Trade routes moved more efficiently. Troops were moved more effectively. Well, you will know that the Apostle Paul was engaged in a ministry, and very often that was based around what we term the missionary journeys of St. Paul. And uh, he was a master strategist. I'm sure that he didn't simply write down a list of cities and decide to go to them. He had a plan, he had a purpose, and one can imagine at least that uh, he wanted to reach Rome, and therefore always when he was working out his itinerary, he put Rome at the top of the list. If all roads led to Rome, then perhaps all roads would lead from Rome, and it would provide an effective outlet for his ministry. And so time and time again, he would put Rome into his itinerary, but something had always hindered him, as he tells us in verse 13. Now, we believe that Paul was in Corinth on his third missionary journey, when he hears that Phoebe, an active member of the church in Cenchrea, and that was a port near to Corinth, near where Paul was, she's going to Rome. And Paul writes a letter to commend her to the fellowship there. And when he has completed this, he has produced what we might term his theological masterpiece, one of the most important documents in the world, his epistle to the Romans or as it's sometimes been called, Paul's Gospel to the Romans, the Gospel according to Paul. And the New Testament of our Bible contains no better explanation of the Christian Gospel than we find here. For Paul was the one who, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thought out the theological implications of Christianity. He applied the teaching of the Old Testament in the light of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He introduced us to some of the great theological terms of the New Testament. He explained the meaning of Christ's first coming. He had a clear understanding of the gospel. And anyone who wants to understand the gospel, and if you were a Christian, that should be all of us, must endeavor to grasp the teaching of at least the first eight chapters of this great epistle. Paul had never been to Rome, as we've suggested. And although there would be some there, of course, who would have heard of him, to others he would be a stranger. And so what he needs to do is to introduce himself and his message to them. And these first 17 verses serve that purpose. They're very often known as the prologue to his epistle or to his gospel. Now, first of all, we should clearly understand what the word gospel means. It means, in simple terms, good news. And we attach that word to the four first books in our New Testament because they present from different perspectives the good news about Jesus Christ. And so we have the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Mark and so on. And it's in that sense that we sometimes refer, therefore, to this letter to the Romans as the gospel according to Paul. It's a word-for-word translation of the Greek word for good message. And we are surrounded in these days by so much uh, that is bad news. 
Everyone welcomes some good news when it's available. But the gospel that Paul is going to detail in this letter is very special good news because it is applicable to any and every human being. It is the only solution to every person's spiritual need. Now, first of all, I want us to look at the gospel's significance. Paul calls it, in verse 1, the gospel of God. Now, that immediately lends it authority. That this good news that he's going to present in this letter is not from any human source. This particular good news comes from the best source because it comes from God. And so what Paul is going to introduce them to is the good news of or from God. And then look at verse 2. The gospel, that is, that he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul is making it clear that he is going to present uh, something to them which is not a new ideology, it is not a new philosophy, it is not something that has simply come out of the blue, it is something, he says, that was promised beforehand. The information that he is going to convey to them is something that had been promised in centuries past through the prophets who spoke in Old Testament times. That information is now preserved in the scriptures to which his readers would have access in what we now call the Old Testament. Now comes perhaps the most significant truth about this gospel. It is the gospel, he says, regarding his, that is, God's son. The gospel, my friends, is all about Jesus. He is the heart of the gospel. There is no gospel, there is no good message when the essentials of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done have been excluded. But there are churches today that don't major on that theme. And they don't therefore even merit the title church. Some churches call themselves gospel churches and I like that phrase, but in truth, if we're not a gospel church... We're not a church at all in the New Testament sense of the word. A church is a called out company of people who has called them God. Paul says here to the Romans, they had been called to belong to Jesus Christ. These first 17 verses in this chapter contain the word gospel on six occasions. But even when that actual word is not being used, the idea of the gospel is there whenever Jesus Christ is mentioned. So this person who is central to the gospel, which Paul is going to present to the Romans, was promised beforehand and is, according to his human nature, verse 3, a descendant of David. As a direct descendant of David, he has a rightful claim to the throne. And as a son of David, as Pilate defined him, he is the king of the Jews. Well, that's his position, humanly speaking. But this person central to this gospel that Paul is going to present is more than someone of mere royal human descent. Paul tells us that his divine nature 
is confirmed, verse 4, by his resurrection from the dead. He is therefore Jesus Christ, our Lord. The fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ really impressed Paul. It was this that convinced Paul that Jesus really is God. And he underlines this fact over and over again in all of the letters that he writes. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to any gospel, to anything that could be termed good news. You see, our greatest need is to have the issue of sin and the repercussions that follow from that dealt with. Not least because the ultimate penalty for sin, of which all of us are guilty, the ultimate penalty is death. That is both physical death, which is common to us, but it also includes spiritual death, eternal separation from God. No one has a greater need than that. Whatever their circumstances might be in their day-to-day lives, nobody has a greater need than to have that need met. Well, it is a fact of history that Jesus died. And most people would still be able to tell you that he died for our sins. But if the death of Jesus is the end of the story and the rest is an ultimate failure, then we have no good news. But the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead confirms his victory over that death penalty. It confirms that what Jesus did for you and what he did for me on that cross was acceptable to God as a solution to this problem that we have. The problem that separates us from God. The problem that will keep us out of heaven. But if Jesus remained dead, then the penalty for sin remains. When Jesus cried out, paid, it is finished. He was speaking of the debt to God for my sin and your sin. But if he remained dead, then the debt was not paid. And God's justice was not fully satisfied. And that's how important the resurrection of Jesus is. God raised him from the dead to the it is finished, paid, that Jesus cried out. God confirmed, yes it is finished, it is paid. That is the significance of the gospel. That's what makes it such good news that we worship this morning. Someone who not only died for us as we were singing a moment or so ago, but someone who is living and at the right hand of God, and pleading our cause. And now secondly, in relation to the gospel, notice the gospel's servant. As he begins this letter, Paul introduces himself in the style of the time. Now at some point in history, we changed things around, and we wrote letters and then added the name at the end, which I think is completely the wrong way around, uh, because I can't imagine anyone having read a letter having no idea who it's from until you get to the last word. And they say, well, isn't that interesting? This letter was from. In other words, we all look at the last page or we turn the page over and say, oh, this is a letter from Paul. And then we start to read. Well, they got it right, didn't they? Tell them up front who it is that's writing the letter. Might sound a bit quaint if we started to do that today. Derek, to 
so-and-so-and-so, but that's the way they did it. So we know who the writer is. And then he describes himself, importantly, as a servant of Christ Jesus. Here is a man who is a striking example of the fact that the gospel takes over a person's life. That is, Jesus takes over our lives. In a day when most men were slaves of some kind or another, this man, Paul, was a free-born citizen of Rome. Proud of that fact. You would imagine that he would introduce himself to them in that way, wouldn't you? you know, Paul, a citizen of Rome. Well, that gives him authority, doesn't it? But he doesn't do that. doesn't mention it. What he does describe himself as is a servant of Christ Jesus. And when Paul says he's a servant, he's conveying the idea of bond slave. Uh, the idea is that of a Hebrew slave tied to his master. There's a lovely picture or type of that uh, recorded in the Old Testament in Exodus 21. Many of you will be familiar with it. Moses, the leader of God's people at that time, is passing on to the people God's instructions as to how they must treat their servants. The law required that if a Hebrew slave had been purchased, he was to serve his master for six years. But in the seventh year, he was to be set free. But then Exodus 21 goes on to say, But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children, I do not want to go free, then the master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. That's like a brad awl that we would have in our toolbox. It's a, a pointed tool that makes holes. Then he will be his servant for life. So here is the option of a slave freely choosing to serve his master for life. Now that's what the gospel of Christ did to Saul of Tarsus, to Paul. And what it does for all who truly respond to it. In other words, Paul considered it a greater honor to be a servant of Christ Jesus than to be a citizen of Rome. But he was not only a servant of Christ Jesus, he says, he had also been called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. What Paul is telling us is that God called him to be a missionary. A sent one. Any missionary is an apostle with a small a because that is the meaning of the word apostle. But Paul is a very special sent one. If you like, he's an apostle with a capital A. He ranks with Peter and James and John. When he writes a letter to the Ephesian church, he tells them that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, that with which the whole building is lined up. So in Paul's illustration of apostles in the New Testament, they provide the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Well, this is the man, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, and also called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Well, how successful was Paul in the mission to which God had set him apart? When he died <clears throat> about 30 years after Jesus had been put on the cross, there was a church 
in every major city of the Western Roman Empire, largely through his efforts. In addition, at least 13 of the 27 books in our New Testament were written by Paul. And so his ministry, if you like, continues right up to the present day because here we are this morning in 2013 and we're reading Paul's letter to the Romans. And if you're a Christian, then it was something from the Bible that arrested your attention. Something. God worked through something from the Bible to bring you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder whether that was something that was written by the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. Well, what else do we know about this servant of Christ or servant of the gospel? Well, in verse 8, we become aware of Paul's interest in these believers in Rome. He had not, only, he'd not founded the church, and he's not jealous of that fact. Rather, he praises God because he has heard that their faith is being reported all over the world. Now, I started by saying that what happened in Rome quickly became known elsewhere. And these believers in Rome are making their presence felt. There's no radio, there's no TV, there are no newspapers, but Paul has heard about these believers in Rome. And that was a thrill to the heart of the apostle because it was his desire that this good news about Jesus should be spread as widely as possible and as quickly as possible. And the Romans were faithful to God in doing that. And so great is this man's interest in them that he calls on God as his witness, that he constantly remembers them in his prayers. That's a challenge to me. Sometimes we say to people, don't we, we'll remember you in our prayers. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, and they're people that we know. But here's the apostle saying, I don't know you, but I can call on God as my witness that I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. But he's got this one desire above all others. He'd love to come and visit them. He wants to see God working there through the preaching of the gospel, and that's long been his burden. But up to the time of writing, his plan to visit Rome has always been frustrated. Well, we know that eventually Paul did arrive in Rome, but he spent the time in Rome in prison and it was in Rome that we believe that he eventually died. The Bible doesn't record his death but Christian tradition informs us that he was probably beheaded during the reign of Nero in the the mid-60s AD. And yet, speaking of this man and his ministry, even when he's in prison, he uses that period of time to spread the gospel. In his immediate surroundings, to those who were around him. But we believe that the letters to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, to the Philippians, and the personal letter to Philemon were all written from prison in Rome. Here was a man sold out to Christ and the gospel. And verse 14 tells us that it made no difference to him what a man's background was, whether he was wise or foolish. He was confident that the gospel could reach any person and be relevant to them. If I put it in this way, you will understand my feeling. Here's a man who was obsessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the suggestion 
that he should in any way be embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel was furthest from his thoughts. And that brings us to verses 16 and 17, familiar to many of us. And in relation uh, to the gospel, in these verses, Paul provides us with the gospel's summary. The gospel's summary. What we have in these two verses is what Paul really believed about the gospel. I want us to look at it as briefly as possible under three headings. The supremacy of the gospel, the sufficiency of the gospel, and the simplicity of the gospel. Notice firstly its supremacy. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And understand that in using the word gospel, Paul means more than an evangelistic message. Sometimes we have something that we specifically call a gospel service. And in our minds we understand uh, what we mean by that. That's an evangelistic meeting. We're we're particularly endeavoring to reach uh, those who are outside of the Christian faith in a gospel meeting. Paul uses the word in that way, but he uses it in a much broader sense. The gospel to him was the complete revealed truth about Jesus Christ didn't stop at conversion and justification, which he speaks of in the following chapters, but later in this epistle it speaks of sanctification and it speaks of glorification. And those are the the main themes that the apostle considers in the chapters that follow. And in the ministry to which he was called, there was no substitute for the gospel. Paul had received a good education. He had great intellectual power. He was well versed in the ways of the world. But he knows that this message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is superior to any religion, to any philosophy on earth. And so I ask the first question to you this morning, do we have total confidence in that same message in the day and age in which we live? We are not to be swayed by the attitude of those around us. Paul knew what it was like to live in a culture where the gospel was despised. And the fact that he uses the phrase, ashamed of the gospel, would suggest that there were those who were. Some years ago, John MacArthur wrote a book, Ashamed of the Gospel, and he relates this issue to our present day. He says the gospel itself is disagreeable unattractive, repulsive, and alarming to the world. It exposes sin. It condemns pride. It shows human righteousness, even the best, most appealing aspects of human nature, to be worthless, defiled, filthy rags. It confirms that the real problems in life are no one's fault but our own. We are fallen sinners with deceitful hearts, evil motives, pervasive pride. And that is not a popular view, he says, particularly in today's psychological climate. It comes as bad news to those who love sin, and many who hear it for the first time react with disdain against the messenger. It's not easy to take a bold stand for the gospel. Have you had that kind of response? from some of the people that you work with or your neighbors, maybe even members of your family. They don't want to hear the gospel. These kind of things can affect our credit rating. 
with some that we would count our friends. Well, Paul would like to be accepted by other people. He was a human being. No one chooses to be rejected. But when it came to his ministry and the message that had been entrusted to him, he is willing to be rejected on a personal level because of the value of the gospel. Why? Because, he says, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. There is no viable alternative. The gospel has no rival in meeting the need of the human heart. So the supremacy of the gospel, and that verse tells us that the gospel is sufficient. It's not a message, says Paul, that I present to people simply to provide information. I have a message that is accompanied by the power of Almighty God. Inherent in the gospel is that power. My friends, the gospel is not simply a message about God's power. The message of the gospel is the vehicle through which God's transforming power can invade a life and bring about the new birth. Mere intellectual eloquence or acumen cannot achieve that. It is simply by the faithful preaching of this message that centers in Jesus Christ that God has chosen to save sinners. So however much the world protests, the world doesn't simply or merely need a better system of education, more social reform, new ideas in religion. The world needs the gospel. And it needs the gospel for this reason. Righteousness, says Paul, is revealed in the gospel. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Righteousness is a right standing that enables a sinner to stand under the scrutiny and under the judgment of a holy God. And that's what you and I need. Without righteousness, no person is able to do that. And Paul is going to show in the immediate verses that follow here that we have no means of our own to produce this required righteousness. He presents a devastating expose of the universality of human sin from verse 18 of this chapter right through into chapter 3 and verse 20. And he sums up then our desperate spiritual condition before God by stating categorically no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, by anything that you and I might try to do. Righteousness is not attained or obtained in that way. It is not within the capability of a sinful man or a sinful woman to produce righteousness, which is what you need to be able to stand before a holy God. It's our greatest need, and it is found in the gospel and in the faith that this gospel generates. So how do we believe, or how can we think, that we can adjust this message, or that we can dilute it, or that we can marginalize this message and still expect God to use it? 
Righteousness, I believe, has two aspects. If you like, a plus and a minus. Or more strictly, a minus and a plus. Let me illustrate what I mean. In the early 1500s, Martin Luther sat in the tower of the black cloister Wittenberg reading these two verses. Romans 1, 16 and 17. And he said, That expression, righteousness of God, was like a thunderbolt in my heart. I hated Paul with all my heart when I read that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Luther could see that the righteousness of God was an unassailable obstacle to eternal life. He was at the point where he knew he was a sinner. He had no righteousness of his own. But then as he read on, he came to the plus side of righteousness. That though he had no righteousness of his own, the righteousness of Jesus Christ had been added to his account. And the true meaning of the gospel, that which made it good news, became clear to him. And that discovery ultimately resulted in the Protestant Reformation. We cannot produce what we need to stand in the presence of God. But in the gospel, we see the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which can be given to us, and which will enable you and I to stand before God without guilt. It is sufficient. Says Paul, it's sufficient to save who? All who believe. Lastly, the simplicity of the gospel. Could anything be more straightforward than that? It will save all who believe. It's a call to simple trust in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord. When Paul was in prison in Philippi with Silas, a fellow missionary, God caused an earthquake which opened the doors of the prison and the guard, thinking that the prisoners would escape, was going to uh, take his own life. Paul stopped him, told him the prisoners were all present, and the guard, who had no doubt been listening to Paul and his companions singing praises to God, even in their pain and their discomfort, comes before these two men and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That is the simplicity of the gospel. The message may be profound. And some of us have been Christians for many, many, many years. And we still have not plumbed the depths of the message. But the requirement to obtain its benefits are quite straightforward. It's responding positively to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is simply, as Paul said to that man who asked that significant question, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Put your trust and your faith in him alone. Don't trust in anything else. Don't trust in anyone else. Just cast yourself on Jesus Christ. Seek his forgiveness and his cleansing and that power that he can provide in your life. And that's why Jesus has to be central to the message. That there is no gospel without him. Biblical preaching is preaching Christ. And we don't always have that today. Oh, his name may be mentioned. But is he central in some of the 
the trendy preaching of today. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians another letter, he told them that when he had been with them, his only message had been Jesus Christ and him crucified. Who he is and what he has done. It doesn't mean, of course, that Paul ran up and down the streets just saying Jesus Christ and him crucified. What he's saying is that was the focus of the message. Whatever else I said to you, that's the message that was to come through. And that is the gospel. The world may be more sophisticated and technological than Paul's world, but the spiritual needs of men and women haven't changed one little bit. The world needs the same message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's still supreme, and it is sufficient for the salvation of everyone who believes. And I ask you this morning, have you believed it? Have you believed it? I'm in an itinerant ministry, and one of the tragedies as you travel around the British Isles is those people who attend church week by week and have never put their trust in Jesus Christ. I was going to say I can't imagine what they're thinking, and yet I suppose that I was in that situation once. But church attendance and anything else that you and I might try to do is not sufficient. It doesn't get you halfway to heaven. What is required is obedience to God's word, which is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you believe it? Without that, you have nothing. You may as well not come because you're not getting merit points simply by being here. It's putting your trust and faith in Christ alone. That is the way of salvation. And if you do believe it, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Are you sharing it with those around you as best you're able to? Always looking for an opportunity to give a reason, as the Apostle says, for the hope that you have within you. The gospel is not simply something that we come to church to hear. Though we do, and I love hearing it as often as possible myself, it's something that we go from church to tell. May the Lord help us to do that. Seven hundred and twenty-eight is our hymn.